0: Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Countdown from Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts for this series, Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today we will be diving into the second of the two Star Wars anthology films, 2018's Solo, A Star Wars Story. Directed by Ron Howard, Solo tells the origin story of everyone's favorite roguish pilot, Han Solo, played here by Alden Ehrenreich. When we meet Han, he is an enterprising schemer who has just joined the Empire in order to track down the woman he loves, Kira, who was separated from him at a young age and is played in the film by Amelia Clark. After befriending a Wookiee named Chewbacca, Han joins up with a gang of criminals led by Woody Harrelson's Tobias Beckett, who are working for crime boss Dryden Boss, played by Paul Bettany. As he becomes embroiled deeper in the criminal underground, we watch Han form the relationships that will change his life and become the legendary smuggler that we all know and love. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Solo's twisty caper a satisfying backstory for one of the most beloved Star Wars characters, or is it missing the adventurous spark of the franchise's best films?
1: So this film was super different, right? Like, I kind of went through and just made, like, a little list. Like, there's no force there's barely any mention of the Force, no lightsabers, right? There's no yellow title crawl. So, I mean, the film felt really different from everything we've seen so far. I feel like it kind of captured some of the excitement I was hoping for. It was a satisfying enough story. Um, you know, it just felt like they packed a lot into it. There was a lot of fan service, and I thought it was really over the top at some points. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree. Um but to me it was it was a little much. Scott what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean I would echo Jay's sentiments about it being a very different kind of movie not just because there's, you know, no lightsabers or no real use of the force or at least mention of the force very much in this film, but I think this is meant to be a different kind of film. Uh, th- this is meant to be your summer box office kind of action film and and that's what it goes for. It goes for kind of the action-y, less, I mean, lighthearted to some extent, but it's not, there are other Star Wars movies that aren't super heavy that are a little bit more lighthearted as well. Uh, but, you know, a more lighthearted feel, uh, definitely more playful, uh, whether it hits or misses on that front, we can talk about that. But it, it goes for a different vibe than I than I think a lot, any of the other seven movies that we've talked about so far. And I'd, Terry to say that it also differs in vibe to the two movies we haven't talked about yet either and so it is very different in that respect and you know we can talk about box office and how this movie performed because this is that lone movie on the podcast where we've actually reviewed it on the podcast before yeah. Um, so, so we do have a point of comparison for our own review but you know it, it didn't do well at the box office relative to other Star Wars movies some of that could be uh, the hangover from The Last Jedi which only came out five months before it uh, some of it could just be the fact that this maybe or maybe not, uh, wasn't one of the better Star Wars movies. We'll talk about that obviously over the course of the podcast. But for me, I still really enjoyed it. I think that you really have to know what you're what you're getting into when you go into this movie, which, you know, by the caveat in nature, probably means that you have to set certain expectations and the movie isn't like some of the other films and maybe it isn't even as good as other films. But it's a, it's going for something different. I think that thing it's going for is just kind of some lighthearted fun. Um Maybe isn't always what you expect when you go to Star Wars movie, especially after something like The Last Jedi, which was very different in a very different way, uh, which we'll get to later on. I'm not saying anything else, Jay. No, don't worry. Uh, But I think that overall, I think this movie was more successful than it got credit for being uh, at the time. And on revisiting it, I did, I think, bump up my Letterbox review. I bumped it up half a star uh, because it was a lot of fun. You do have to raise your hands about some things and have to be willing to move past some things. Uh, but I think you can still, there's still a lot of fun to be had in this film and, uh, we can talk about what particular, uh, parts of the movie are, are fun, uh, for me later on, but Scott, what do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that we've reviewed this on some like it, Scott, and if you want to scroll all the way back on our podcast feed, you can find that back from last year when the movie, um, was released. And so I was interested, interested to see if I would have any sort of different reaction to it than I did then. And I don't think that I really did. I think I feel pretty much the same way, which is that this movie is fine. Um, It's really nothing special in the Star Wars universe, in my opinion. It um, is basically a heist film. As you said, uh, as you both said, it's different from a lot of the other Star Wars movies. So was Rogue One. And we talked about some of the reasons why, and we talked about a lot of the reasons why I think Rogue One was different in a good way. Um, And I think that, Solo could have been different in a good way. Like, I don't think that making a, a star Wars heist film uh, is necessarily a bad concept, but the problem is I didn't really care very much about the heist. I think that um, the plot is pretty boring, honestly, in, in places there, there are stretches of the movie where I struggled to care about um coaxium and all of the shady dealings going on between Dryden Voss and Tobias Beckett and people stabbing each other in the back. And it's just kind of a, a you know, a, a shrug of the shoulders to me at, at certain points. I don't think that um, Amelia Clark is a particularly compelling love interest for Han for various reasons that we'll get into probably. But um, I do think that, you know, the thing that does keep me, you know, invested as much as I can be is, you know, some of the characters. I think that. that um, you know, Hans uh, Alden Ehrenreich does a good job as Han Solo. I don't know. I, I think this time I was I was thinking more about having you know recently watched the original trilogy trilogy how how much continuity there is for, you know with this character. Do I actually believe that this is the same Han Solo that we see in the original trilogy? And I don't know that I do, but I think that our Alden Ehrenreich creates a likable character. Um, And I think that Donald Glover, who we haven't mentioned, is a fun Lando Calrissian. I I think that, you know, the moments for me, which um, stand out, are some of those fan service moments you've talked about, Jay. I think that getting to see, uh, you know, Han and Chewbacca meet for the first time, getting to see Han make the Kessel Run in um, less than 12 parsecs is, um, you know, these moments that you hear talked about all the time in the original trilogy and in the movies, but you never actually get to see them until this movie. So... Those um, those moments are satisfying because of what they add to the Star Wars canon, but I think that what they are packaged around is pretty mediocre, in my opinion. All right, let's move on. Uh, now that we're through the, our general thoughts on Solo, uh, and we can talk about uh, you know the man who is in the title, uh, Han Solo, and particularly Alden Ehrenreich um, and his performance as Han Solo. Obviously, he has a very tall task here, following. Uh, up from Harrison Ford, one one of the most iconic actors and likable actors of all time, playing one of the most iconic characters and likable characters of all time. Um, He he has a lofty task, to be sure. Jay, do you think that he lived up to the task that uh, he was given by his predecessor?
1: So just to echo what you said quickly about giving him full credit, uh, you know, to standing up to this tall task, you know, he doesn't look much like Han Solo. He doesn't really sound much like Han Solo. But, I mean, he does create a really likable character. And honestly, uh, to me, I kind of do believe that he, you know, is a slightly different looking and sounding version of the same character, though. Like, to me, like, you know, I was looking at a younger Han Solo. Um, And just to, you know, go back to your point about Donald Glover, I love watching their interactions, too. Like, I really bought that Donald Glover was a young Lando Calrissian. Kind of watching that whole thing play out, like, that was a lot of fun. Um, Again, I mean, to, to... Circle back to my point about the fan service. So the moments you mentioned are ones that I thought were great. Like, you know, him meeting Chewie, making the run, et cetera. Um, but when, uh, when he's saying things like, I've got a really good feeling about this. And yeah. Chewbacca, that's too long. I need to give you a nickname. I'm kind of <laughs> sitting there like, oh, come on. I get well, it. Um,
0: and, and perhaps the worst moment of all to me, which is how Han Solo got his name. We,
1: oh, yeah. We groaned oh, about yeah. this
0: when the movie came out. And I, I don't think it has gotten any better. I mean, you talk about such an iconic character again, needed a, a great backstory to that name. And that's not at all what we get here. You know, the the fact the Imperial Guard just assigns him this name because he is traveling so you know by himself. He's traveling solo. I'm like, come on, you're telling me that's how one of the greatest characters in Star Wars got his name?
1: Agreed. Just- Agreed but to to go back to the original question like I still think he does a good job I I just think the moments like the ones I just described kind of again like make me groan Um, but for the most part like I thought he lived up
2: yeah you know I remember saying at the time that I thought that Alden Ehrenreich did a fantastic job as Han Solo I mean no no one is a young Harrison Ford except for Harrison Ford and so to to want to compare him to Harrison Ford and compare the film to what it would have been if you had a 22 year old version of Harrison Ford or whatever. I think that's just ridiculous (laughs) to start with. And I saw so many reviews that were doing that. It felt like at the time and even going back and revisiting it now, I feel even more strongly. I think that Alden Ehrenreich nails the small stuff that are homages to, to that original Han Solo character, Harrison Ford, you know, just the way he fires, you know, fires his blaster, the way he kind of just, Stands in, in, in and holds himself in his composure and and his uh, stature, so to speak. I think that he nails all those smaller things really well, while also trying not to completely emulate Harrison Ford, because no one can deliver a line or or, or I guess imbue a line with the same you know level of charm, charisma, you know, roguish. Uh, nature that that Harrison Ford can, and, you know, e- some people can get close, but it's going to be different. It's not going to be the same. And uh, I think what Alden Ehrenreich is able to do is he's able to capture those homages that I think harken toward, I guess, forward towards the the character that will become the Han Solo that you know we've talked about in episodes four, five, and six. And while while also making the character's own, because the reality is like the story is a young Han Solo. Like he is, he's naive. He is not the jaded, roguish you know, trader, um, trader, that's not the right word, uh, smuggler. smuggler, yeah, yeah smuggler yet that, you know, that that he's going to become. And I think that it's really important uh, to recognize that like, yes, he's not jaded yet. I mean, maybe by the end of the movie, he should be more jaded than he is. But I think that you also get that at the end of the film as well. I mean, I don't know if we really need to worry about spoilers here. But, you know, by the end, he knows exactly what Beckett's going to do. And and so, I you know, you start to see that jaded nature come in. And for me, I think the complaints around both Alden Ehrenreich's performance and also this particular portrayal of Han, they just don't they don't resonate for me at all. I think that what Ehrenreich is able to do and the Han soul that we ultimately see on screen it is a well is a believable and well and well performed character. And I think that there are plenty of other things that are worthy of complaint about this movie, particularly maybe, you know, the. The, the the subtext of the plot, not necessarily the subtext, but the premise of, of what's happening on on screen and and the whole thing with Kira. We can talk about Amelia Clark and also the character itself here in a few minutes, I'm sure. But what you actually get with Han Solo, I think, I think it's nailed spot on honestly. I I don't know if I could have really hoped for more from this particular if you're if you're slicing out this portion of his life, I don't, I don't know what more you could have done.
0: I think I agree to an extent. I think, I mean, I I like the performance a lot. And like I said, I think he creates a character and I think it is the right choice to not try and emulate Harrison Ford, because I think for the reasons you've mentioned, that's pretty much impossible to do. I think by the end of the movie, I am starting to see this Han Solo um, that we know, you know, you mentioned him, what, what goes on with him and Beckett at the end. I mean, the fact that he shoots Beckett there at the end of the movie, that, um, yeah, spoilers whatever um hey he, sh- he definitely shot first no controversy right yeah i shot-
1: love that this movie took it. a stance on that right like
0: <laughs> he shoots first there but yeah but like see that's paving the way right for the han solo that we see in that first scene in the cantina in a new hope um that feels like han solo and so i guess what i'm saying is i would have liked to see more of what happened after this movie i, I would like to see more from alden erin reich you know leading up to a new hope because i think he's starting to get to the han solo that we know at the end of the movie but um for most of the movie i was like i like this guy like he's a good character i like him as a protagonist it's a fun performance but like i don't get the i don't get that this is han solo until towards the end of the movie and i think that that you know it's an origin story it's it's hard to to establish that from the beginning and yeah. you know he's not the han solo that we know and love at the beginning but exactly um I guess I just wanted, I guess I just wanted more. Um, And, and maybe, you know, we'll talk about whether the, um, this movie, whether it was necessary or not a little bit later on, but I guess maybe my thoughts after watching it this time, and especially with Mandalorian going on right now and being so successful, would this have been better as a series? I don't know. Um. Well, will you get more of Alden Ehrenreich in a Disney plus series? Uh, Mm, I don't know about
2: that. If you but. want the gap, if you want that gap to be bridged more, tweet at Lucasfilm.
0: Yeah, for the, for the reasons you talked about the box office, I'm not sure we're gonna get that. But um, but box
2: office doesn't so. matter for these things.
0: That's true. I mean, and, and Mandalorian is crushing, and I, I think that the other series are gonna do well. So it may be something that they consider. And I mean, I, yeah. I'm in favor of it because, like you said, I think um, he does a pretty great job um, fulfilling a very tough legacy here.
2: Yeah, like if Mandalorian was a, was a film, I mean, we don't have to jump down this road, but if Mandalorian were a film with, with no established, like, Star Wars characters in it, and they put that out, you know, in theaters in it May of that well, yeah. 2020, would it really do that well at the box office? Like, I don't know.
0: But it's awesome as a series. Probably not. Um, that Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, let's talk about some of the other performances then in this supporting cast. We've mentioned Amelia Clark, Woody Harrelson, um, Paul Bettany, uh Phoebe Wallerbridge is L three. Um Yeah, TBT when I
2: last this time last year when I did not know who Phoebe Waller-Bridge really was in this movie. And <laughs> then rewatching it now.
0: Yeah. Um any anyone you want to talk about, Jay? Do you want to hit on everyone sort of quickly or
1: uh, it is a little bit criminal that we haven't mentioned John Favreau as Rio yet.
0: Oh yeah, right. Um, he, I,
1: I was a big fan of him. I, short, short-lived,
0: unfortunately, but
1: short-lived, yes. and he might have given one of my least favorite lines in the movie. Um, but I like us, if you just remove that. Well, which one? You got to got to say which yeah. one. It sure, is no, about. I will. It's it's uh, after you know he kind of gets shot on uh, in the heist, and Han takes over, and he's like, "Wow, kid, like you really are a hell of a pilot." And I'm just sitting there, like, nothing hell, yeah. he has done at this point has like done anything to convince me that he's a hell of a pilot. He literally just took the wheel and I think he turned it left a little. And then Rio looks up and gives the line. And I'm like, what? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe I'm being nitpicky, but that line made me kind of like slap my head a little bit. That's just me. But otherwise like the scene by the campfire, you know, tell us about the girl and all that. Like I, I thought he was so on point. So great. Alden Aaron Reich and Donald Glover. I really like Woody Harrelson. I thought he did great here. I, you know, feel similarly to you about Amelia Clark in that I didn't find her super compelling as a romantic interest. Um, Fandy Newton uh, Val. That uh, I'll say short lived. Talk about short lived yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and it, it didn't really carry any emotional weight for me. Um, no. You know, when she met her end at all. Um, no, not at all. But you know, still like a decent character. The end of the line, babe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah oh that whole thing but yeah anyone else i'm leaving out
0: phoebe waller bridge did you like her as uh f-
1: so she was like funny but a- i don't know if it was not, just not, me not did i thought th- it, all the sex jokes were just uh, <laughs> like really weird
0: for me yeah it was like we, we finally introduced a female droid and yet we're going to just make her have sex jokes the whole time. It was right. weird.
1: Like, you know, the joke about like finding your spot. How, how do her Orlando work? Like all, I was. Uh. I, fi- I, fi- I find it a
0: little too similar, honestly, too, to Alan Tudyk's, um K2 from Rogue mm-hmm. One. I feel, I feel like their comedic aesthetic is pretty similar. Like this sort of snarky, sarcastic, like it's different. It's definitely different from C-3PO, like it's they're they're hyper aware of what's going on and i don't know that it, it brings anything new to me and to your point i don't think a lot of the comedy really lands
1: yeah i mean i actually did really like the scene where she freed all the other droids like it, yeah. it, was, it was so over the top but i, I really role, liked yeah. it but it's yeah to echo what you said Like think yeah the comedy didn't really land with me a lot of the time
2: yeah the thing with l3 is that i think it lands well for like the first few minutes of of hearing it, and then you realize, like, this is her stick. This is it. This is yeah. all she's got. Um, and you know, I actually I will say that when I was revisiting this, it was less painful, I think, than I had thought it would be. I don't know if I I just I think I built it up as being like, oh god, I got to put up with this woke female droid. <laughs> uh, but it, honestly, it wasn't as bad as I remember it being. And I don't know. Maybe that's because I had prepared myself, and maybe overestimated how annoying it would be. But for me, I do want to circle back and talk about Cure in a second because mm-hmm. one of my key questions that I thought about going through this because mainly just because Amelia Clark hasn't done a single good movie. I mean, for goodness' sake, she needs to well, fire her. She needs and, to fire her agent.
0: Um, and I, I will say, I don't chalk it up um, as ton to her performance here, but yeah, I think the problem is what we know about this character right like we have one like the I han, eat nothing when i'm talking about what we know about uh, yeah what we know about this character what we know about the future in terms of han uh, solo's yeah. future like we we have the iconic romance between han and leia that every fan loves and is super invested in so it's like now you're asking us to get on board with someone who is not leia and who we know this relationship is not going to last um you know no no matter whether we like her or not this relationship is not gonna last and I, I don't know I think she's put in a, a really hard um yeah predicament here you know because c- obviously our initial reaction is like oh here we go here's a freaking I can't think of the term but she's she's trying to steal Leia's man from her you know
2: yeah no I think I think I totally agree first off and that's actually what I was gonna say is that I think the question that I have here is because as much as I think Amelia Clark's performance is probably just fine the character is so much worse than the performance i think like not just because of exactly what you're describing which i want to circle back to and talk about in a second but also just the fact that we're regardless of of whether she is like this person who's stealing han from leia or is like constructed in a way that might be perceived um in that light i think that she's given this tough performance of being someone worth like spending three or whatever years it was for Han to like join yeah. the military and then like understand why he would come back to Karelia for that. Because we're not given that set up in a good enough way, especially when you get to the point where he's like, I don't know, like leave Crimson, Dawn. especially when she like, he starts to know the kind of person that she is. Like the connection is just not established. I'm and not saying that it's not there and it doesn't exist. It's just not explained and set up well.
0: And we know that Han like hates the military and the war and all of this stuff from like, the Han that we get in a new hope. So like for him to actually join, you know, the empire, like he does, mm-hmm. you know, he he has, it, this has to be someone he really cares about. And to your point, I don't get why he does.
2: Yeah. And then to your other point around how the character is kind of set up, even after the premise is established and it goes through the movie, I think that's actually part of what this, or I guess the way that I think about the premise of the movie is not that this character is constructed in a way where you're going to be against her inherently because she's, stealing Han from Leia or whatever. I think that's actually part of the point because the point is taking you from naive, you know, juvenile Han to like jaded smuggler Han by the end of the film. And so part of that is like, you need characters in your life that are going to like disappoint you and Jade you in a way that you're no longer going to be naive. And the problem is there. Yes, like that does make you as the as the audience kind of against this character and know that something's going to go wrong with this character because it can't go right or none of it makes any sense. But it's not a, again, going back to that first point that I was making, it, it doesn't feel established enough for this to really be the heartbreak that Jade's that Jade's Han in a way. And so I think Amelia Clark and, and to your point, Scott, is kind of left hung out to dry in a lot of ways with this role and. Again, that's what so that's when I say when I go back, and say she needs to fire her agent. She's like, go find an agent who can get her a good film role that, you know, she can actually sink her teeth into because, you know, Terminator Genesis garbage. This movie, for her, her character, not very good. And I mean, I haven't seen whatever this stupid Christmas movie she's doing with Henry Golding is last, last Christmas. Christmas. Is that what it is? Yeah,
0: there's last Christmas. There's another movie, too. Oh, there's me before you, which is a other. Uh, yeah, like sappy romance movie. She was in.
2: Yeah, I know John Rocha loves Last Christmas or whatever, but it's not because of Amelia Clark. It's probably because he's in love with the Bee Gees or whatever. But uh, George Michael. But Oh, across. yeah, not the Bee Gees. <laughs> Different one. Uh, anyway, screw it. Uh, but the point is, I think that Amelia Clark, someone probably worth talking about, and I've probably spent too much airtime talking about her now. But I think one of her characters, or her, sorry, her character is one of the things that I think was the, one of the things I was really thinking about on this rewatch. You know, this being like the third, I think, unfortunately, the third time I've seen this movie, uh, which I guess is actually about on par with the other Star Wars movies. I've probably seen them a few more times. But, um, yeah, it was just something that was on my mind as one of the things that I wanted to unpack a little bit more now that, you know, a year and a half has passed uh, since the unit. But then it, to talk about other characters, uh, you know, I said my short piece on Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Donald Glover rocks. I think that they do take some interesting creative um, liberties with, with Lando making him. Pansexual, I don't know. Um, it's uh it's an interesting take, but I think Donald Glover is the man to take it there, and he does it. He does it really well. I don't know if I necessarily see the Lando in, I guess in some ways similar to what we're talking about Alden Ehrenreich and Han. I don't know if I necessarily see Donald Glover as like the Lando for episode five and six, but I like Donald Glover's really Lando am. better than I like Billy D. Williams Lando, uh, which is just something we're gonna have to contend with. Um, and so it, that didn't bother me that much because I never really felt like I knew Lando that well from episodes five and yeah. six, unlike Han, who, you know, really well by the end of the original trilogy. And so Donald Glover's new spin on that character and very endearing spin on that character, uh, really, really works for me.
0: Yeah. No, I, I feel a little differently. I think that I do see some, a lot of the, the Lando that Donald Glover provides in Billy D Williams's Lando, um, or vice versa, perhaps. Um, but I think, yeah, like, he he's he's good. He he uh like I don't think that Donald Glover is like the greatest actor, um. But I also don't think that Billy Dee Williams is the greatest actor either. So it's it's fine. Um, and I think he plays off of of Alden Ehrenreich nicely. Um, and you know the card game scenes between them are really good. Um, I think I think that um. Woody Harrelson does what Woody Harrelson does. You know, he, he does his Woody Harrelson stick. Uh, There's never been a role more Woody Harrelson than this Yeah. Role. Well, maybe uh, Tallahassee and Zombieland, but um, I view these he, on par with each other. <laughs> he's very, he's very charismatic. He, you know, which makes sense, right. For his character, right. Cause you have to believe that Han would get drawn in by this guy first and really see this guy's a mentor. And then of course get stabbed in the back by him at the end. Um, and so I think Woody Harrelson works for that. Uh, and I also, I think Paul Bettany, you know, he's a mustache twirling villain, but, uh, but he does it pretty, pretty well here. I think that um, he, he does what the role is called for um, what the role calls for. I don't think he's not going to go down uh, um, in history as an iconic star Wars villain, but um, you know, you'd be I,
2: forgiven I, for forgetting about him tomorrow, actually.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, and I, I think that's, you know, the problem with the movie, right? The, the plot is just kind of boring and forgettable. And yeah, this character, it's a
2: popcorn flick. Ultimately it's like a popcorn flick star Wars movie.
0: Yeah. uh, I, I I agree with that. um, For the most part, I, I just, you know, I wanted more, like I said. Yeah. But on the, yeah. Well, on the point about dry and
2: Voss, I think that it's one of those things where this character, you know, like typical star Wars villains, Shrouded around like a uh, amidst a mystique of all right, this guy's part of a larger criminal organization. Usually it's the Sith, in this case, it's Crimson Dawn. Um, and he feels very samey it, to every other, you know, mu- mustache twirling, if you want to use that phrase, villain you get in Star Wars, but just doesn't, but lacks the memory, like the memorableness. Mem- mem- I don't even know the right word would be. Uh, lacks that extra spark that you get, like you can go through a lot of the other villains with with a few exceptions and say, you know what, like Darth Maul, he has like the double-sided, like he has the t- d- double-ended lightsaber. Like, you know, Count Dooku was a former Jedi. That's kind of interesting and, that he has these relationships with other people.
0: Even the person whose presence we get an allusion to at the end of the movie, which is Jabba the Hutt. You wonder yeah. if, uh, you know, this movie could have been more successful if they had had an established villain like Jabba the Hutt at the center.
2: Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that it, it lacked an extra spark. And unfortunately, I I just don't know if, if um if Paul Bettany is the guy who's gonna give you an extra spark out of a villain. Like I think that he plays the role well enough, but honestly, the scenes that and I want to talk about this later when I bring up something at the very end before we wrap things up, but like I just feel like some of his scenes especially may have intentionally been meant to do one thing and just ended up doing some going a different direction and honestly felt pretty awkward, especially some of the earlier scenes with him. Like there were supposed to be jokes that just weren't there. And it was supposed to be almost comedic relief in some ways uh, to an extent, right? Like you still need the serious nature for this villain, but ultimately Scott, one of the things that we can probably revisit at the end too, is just like, like, should this movie have even been a drama? Shouldn't it have been a comedy? Like I should, they should have <laughs> just leaned more into that probably. Um, Cause it isn't successful in its dramatic, isn't in It's dramatic aspects. I don't think. So, I don't know. That's something that we can circle back around to later, but that's the way I felt about Dryden Voss. It's Yeah, just, just confusing tone of his character.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Um, okay, let's say a word about some of the action sequences here. Um, of course, we've mentioned that, you know, long heist sequence that takes place on the train um, where we lose a couple of characters. Um, there's various sequences throughout. The Kessel run uh, is a nice action-packed sequences. You know, we get a big it's crash bang climax action climax. Um, Jay, any any standouts there for you? Uh,
1: to go back quickly about something you said uh, about the poker games.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, I or uh, I, I call them the, I'm calling them the poker games. Excuse Sabacc. me. Sorry, Sabak. Hey, I, I just I didn't know how the game was played, and in my mind, that's the game it most closely resembled. Um, not an action sequence, obviously, but uh, just to uh, counter what you thought about them, I actually didn't like them at all, and not uh-huh. at all, perhaps, but. I thought maybe we spent a little bit too much time on them because I have no idea how to play this game. Yeah. Maybe that's selfish of me. Um, an I mean, actual I, don't think, I don't think it's sorry. that
0: important that we know, but I mean, it, it is. The, the allu- first it,
2: The first one especially does go on a little long.
0: And it is alluded to right in, in um, either five or six that this is how Han lost the Millennium Falcon or, or gained right. the Millennium Falcon rather.
1: Yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. The actions an action scene that sticks out to me is the escape scene against the uh imperial roadblock later on in the movie when uh you know Chewie kind of comes into his own Lando's freaking out over L3 and his capes. That one definitely grabbed my attention,
2: yeah. I mean, I think if you had to point toward a set piece, it probably would be the you know dodging the imperial blockade making the Kessel run, right? I mean, that is one of those nostalgic moments where always always was alluded to in episodes four, five and six. I think it got mentioned to each one of them and you, you get the backstory behind that. And and not only is that kind of the moment where you feel like, all right, this is the closest thing that we get to like any other star Wars movie really that we have so far Is this, like chase through um, the, is it ma? I don't even remember what it's called. Um, And this final climactic part of that scene, which I think has some of the best cinematography actually in the star Wars series is this shot where they have they you know they inject the oh my god what is the stupid name of that stuff Coaxium. Uh, the coaxium into the hyperdrive and it like sputters out for a second and then it blasts forward and you get this like still pan shot of or wide shot of them shooting out of the maw and I just think that's such a cool shot. So I think from that perspective that is the scene in terms of action scenes that that I would think of that I point to in this that and then of course the, the train sequence which is probably the best pure action sequence when you, you know, you have both them, you know, you have Beckett's crew fighting, uh, infant's Nest and also fighting, uh, the, I guess it's Imperial, the Imperial transport, uh, people as well. And I think that that is probably the best piece together bit of action, uh, in the film, even if it's, uh, not all the pieces necessarily tied together from a narrative arc with, uh, the maybe lack of impact of a character like Thandie Newton, uh, dying Val dying. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, Jay, you mentioned the oddly delivered Rio line, but Rio's character that, that, that hit me a little bit harder, I'd say, cause who doesn't love a John Favreau voice acted character? <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but Rio did really well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that, uh, that's why the scene, you know, flaws, falls, falls a little flat to me because it, we do have these moments that are supposed to be dramatic and sympathetic and they're not really, although, you know, I agree that from a technical perspective, um, It probably is the standout here. I also want to mention, and this is probably my favorite scene, so maybe getting ahead of myself a little bit. But I really like it. it, You know, it's only sort of tangentially an action scene. But the first scene between Han and Chewie, when um, Han is sort of, you know, thrown, almost like being thrown to the Rancor uh, in Jabba's palace, he's thrown to, you know, this wookie uh, monster it's it's a side of Chewbacca that we've never seen before like we we always see Chewbacca as sort of a fluffy good guy you know but here you know he's he's massive we really get a a, an idea of the size of Chewbacca which is you know maybe something that we don't really appreciate in the other movies and you know he's caked in mud and it's real darkly shot and you know he actually he really looks intimidating um and so I I like that um moment and the way that Han is able to communicate with him and um, you know, kick off this friendship. I think that is one of those moments of nostalgia and fan service that really works um here. And I believe their friendship throughout. Yeah, I don't remember how tall Peter Mayhew was, but the guy plant Yunas Suataimo is full seven feet tall. Well done. tall in stature. Very much so. Um, so we we've actually talked a lot about the nostalgia fan service moments here. Uh, Jay, I think you've kind of said your piece about why you thought some of them didn't work. Scott, do you have anything to add as far as um, you know some of these fan service moments, how certain people got their names, um, you know, moments that we've heard alluded to in the other movies that we get to see for the first time here?
2: Yeah, no, I I do agree with some of the. I guess this is the way that I would put it. I think that the bits of fan service that are more thought through and less thrown in in the last, like feel thrown in in the last minute. I think those things connect really well. I mean, I, I think the piece of nostalgia that you're talking about with Han and Chewie's uh, first meeting uh, really lands well. Like that's one of, that's also one of one of the best scenes in the movie. I agree. I think that the Kessel Run is a scene that delivers. That's alluded to. You know, the Sabat game, to me, I think I think a little bit more highly of that. And it was nice to see that. Uh, given its treatment, I think it's a tier below the Han and Chewie scene and the and the Kessel Run scene, but still up there. But then the ones that, that feel like they're just thrown in the last minute, like the Solo name, it it feels like they like made the like someone wrote the, I forget who wrote the script for this, but like Kazdin wrote the script for this and was like, you know what. We Forgot to add in a like solo's name origin.
0: Hold on, we'll just go edit this and throw this in at the last minute. Like, that's what it felt like. Why couldn't you like, have just been boring with the name Han Solo? Like, that would have been even better than what they do in this movie. No, I, to- I
2: totally agree. Yeah. Um, and because I mean, even more so than the first couple times I watched this film, I roll my eyes so hard when, when I hear uh, when I, when I hear that Imperial, I don't even know, like admin person giving him the name uh it's pretty rough but i think the parts that are like actually more thought out i think they're done really well for the most part but it is kind of scarred up front by one of the one of the first pieces of nostalgia uh, that that we get and, and one of the things so now that i know this isn't um really a, it, it, it actually anyways is kind of opposite of nostalgia but one of the things that i really like about solo and hasn't come up yet uh that makes it, i think different and it's it's notable because it's different is the score is so different for this film uh, than any of the other ones? Like John Williams only doing kind of the solo theme, which is um, you know obviously a riff on the on the Star Wars theme itself. But that's that's the only contribution that he has. To this score and it feel unlike Rogue One. The rest of the score, which is also not uh, composed by John Williams, uh, the rest of the score just feels different and feels more like Young Han Solo to me. And and I think that originality <coughs> contributes uh, to the film. And it, and yes, that's kind of like the opposite of nostalgia, I guess but it's one of the things that I think about when we talk about nostalgia because those were things that was notable because it was different. And I liked that it was different. It wasn't just, you know, so, you know, John Williams pulls up the same music that he's composed, I don't know, eight times at that point. And then it's like, "Hmm, you know what? I can do something different. No, they do something completely different. I will give it a flavor. And Scott knows well that, you know, one of the song, one of the themes that they composed just for the trailer is one of my favorite pieces of star Wars music. Um, They obviously not, obviously sorry. They don't include that in the actual, movie, which I hadn't realized on first watch, but uh, it's a piece of music that they had composed just for the first trailer. And uh, it's awesome. So I just really appreciate that part of this film as well.
0: Yeah. John Powell is the composer to give a shout out to him. But um, yeah, it's not something that really stuck out to me this time around, but um, I don't doubt that you are correct in um, how different it is. And, you know, the fact that it works here, Um, I think you do need a, a breather from the very familiar John Williams music at times. Um, which is great. Which which is great, yes. And we'll talk about, and with the next two movies, maybe how he does some different things with this score um, that I think you know moves things forward a little bit. But um, something we need to talk about is the big twist that comes at the end of this movie um, when... Which one? Yeah, I was supposed to say. <laughs> not the one where we find out Tobias Beckett was stabbing him in the back. Of course, the one when we we discover that Dryden Voss's is superior is, in fact... Uh, Darth Maul, um, you know, presumed dead long ago um, at the end of Phantom Menace, presumed to be killed by Obi-Wan. Um, and then we see Kira contact him at the end of the movie. Um, Jay, what was your reaction to this? Did you see this coming? Uh, what What do you think the implications of this are? How could Darth Maul have survived? Thoughts on this?
1: I mean, so this isn't the first time we've seen a character with, uh, you know, have his legs chopped off and survive in this uh, in the franchise, right? Of course. Um, and just to go back to, you know, our conversation right before we hit record, like you said, if you had asked me to guess what movie he would have shown up in, it was not this one. And I didn't really see it coming. Like, I'd, I'd been waiting, you know, to see when he would show up and when he did. You know, I, I, I think I actually threw my hands up and was like, oh, like, you know, in like actual shock. Um, and he spoke, you know, yeah. a lot. That was, he has that was, only
0: one line in The Phantom Menace. So.
1: Right. And, the voice you know, of Sam Witwer yeah, running strong. Witwer,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, No, that, that was surprising. And I mean, I, again, because I'm uh, my, my keeping my head in the sand uh, about, you know, what what everything is to come. Like, I don't know if this means that there will be an appearance like on one of the Disney Plus shows or if, you know, he just resurfaces, you know, in the later movies because he clearly didn't die. So he could show up in Force Awakens or Last Jedi. Like, I, I really don't know. But he's there. And I don't I don't imagine that was just there. As like a throwaway, you know, like it's one thing to include lines that, you know, are referencing, you know, all the other movies, but to bring back a character that I guess was kind of presumed dead. uh, I don't imagine that was for nothing, but, you know, we'll we'll see. Well, Scott. I think
2: it might have just been a bit of fan service. I know we were talking about this before going live as well, but just to talk about it on air, like Darth Maul was already known to be back uh, and being, you know, and alive in the Star Wars canon. He has appeared on—I forget if it's Clone Wars or Rebels or both—that uh, one, you know, b- both animated shows that were on Cartoon Network, but now, of course, uh, live on on Disney Disney Plus and and are canon. And canon. Yeah, they are canon, and so he was known to be alive then. So, it, it, obviously, it was a big revelation for you know all the non you know star wars nerds out there like you know even you know scott or or myself might even identify as star wars nerd so to speak but maybe didn't necessarily expect or know that darth maul uh was alive and didn't expect him to be in this movie certainly i won't you know weigh in on whether or not he shows up in episode seven or eight but he was a known quantity in the other parts of the star wars universe and so you know if you know whether or not he shows up later on in in future uh episodes of this podcast I think that his presence could have been explained. And I don't know if Crimson Dawn was an organization that was in Rebels or Clone Wars. because I just haven't watched those series, but uh, that had been established. And so if they were bringing him back, I think it's plausible that they only brought him back um, as a as an allusion to this larger canon of of TV shows that are not um, more widely watched, I guess.
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting moment, and I hope that there is more follow-through on it, but but maybe not. Maybe the follow-through is in those animated series, as you've said, Scott. But um, as someone who thinks Darth Maul is a cool villain but was very unsatisfied with the next to nothing that we learn about him in The Phantom Menace, um, I was excited when this first happened, and I thought, you know, maybe we'll... In a, in a future movie, because, you know, of course, at this point, when I first saw the movie, um, we were still supposed to be getting some more anthology movies going forward. And that was um, canceled. But, um, I you know, I was excited about the prospects of this. What are we going to learn about this character? You know, because I think that's always been a question mark for me. Um, and you know, yeah, maybe we're, maybe we're not going to learn anything more about this character. Maybe um, we, we've, we maybe it was just a bit of fan service moment there for people who don't watch the animated series, you know, to say, look, Darth Maul is alive. You know, you've always wondered, and here's, here's the answer. He is alive. But personally, I hope he shows up in, you know, maybe a, a future Disney plus series in some context. I think that'd be cool. One one last question before we get into our wrap up phase, guys, um, and that's kind of what we danced around a little bit throughout the, the necessity of this movie. We talked about it with Rogue One, with it being an anthology film, with it not being tied in uh, really to the Skywalker saga. I mean, you know, tangentially, of course, but um, you know, is it, d- did this movie need to exist? You know, outside of the um, you know canonical Skywalker saga. Do do we need uh, Solo and, and does it hold a, a nice place in the Star Wars galaxy, Jay?
1: No, <laughs> um, no, uh, we didn't need it. Um, I, I like Scott your description of it as a popcorn flick. Um, you know, I, I mean, I enjoyed it enough. Like, and I, I feel like I've been dragging it pretty hard. Like, I give it, you know, it's not my lowest rated Star Wars movie. Um, so, I mean, spoiling that, but. Yeah. It, you know, it played a good part, uh, I guess, you know, in showing me some of the like, you know, early Han Solo. Right. And, you know, I bought into it. I have complained about, you know, the the fan service and I feel like that's kind of why the movie exists again. You know, on some notes, it really works. Like, you know, some that you described others, you know, I think back to things like Han when he boards the Falcon talking about how his dad built plane, or ships like that, like that just felt like it was shoehorned in. I don't, I don't at least remember that ever being a thing. Um, I feel like there was something they just added in after the fact. Um, and then, of course, you know, like, find me on Tatooine. Like, you know, again, that just felt like, you know, wink, nod. So much of that. I, I was, It was fun, you know. I don't think we needed it.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to sit here and say you need it. But if you were to sit down as a, you know, as a, I don't know, a group of people at Lucasfilm, if you're Kathleen Kennedy and the board of Lucasfilm or the creative directors of Lucasfilm, and you're like, all right, we're creating an anthology series. Where do you want to go? I think that an origin story for Han Solo is makes a lot of sense, and so if you are sitting down and, and making anthology movies, I think this is a sensible place to have gone. And so, if the anthology movies were always going to be a thing, I think that this is a necessary story. If in the realm of things that you could have put brought to screen, if you're talking about in the context of the Skywalker saga, I mean, no, we d- we don't need to know the the about the origins of Han Solo because he is such a satisfying arc in the original trilogy. We don't need to know the time before that arc begins, right? Especially uh, to your point from earlier, Scott, so far before that arc begins that he feels almost unrecognizable until the very last moments of the film. And there's still a lot of, a lot of gap to be bridged there. And so in that sense, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that they were right to think that this was a place to go for an anthology film. And like I said, there's a lot of fun to be had. I feel like I'm probably the most positive person on this movie on this episode, which is maybe what I expected to, but for me, there's a lot of fun to be had. I had that fun. This movie is a popcorn flick right like that doesn't mean popcorn flicks can't be you know 10 out of 10 movies you know mission impossible fallout last year is a great example of a popcorn flick that is a hell of a lot of fun and damn near close to a 10 out of 10 movie um and you know this isn't that but i think you need to level set your expectations and know what you're going into to get the most out of it that's not me giving it a pass or anything but you just got to know what you're getting into with this film and in that sense it's not necessary uh, but I still appreciated that that's what they went for. I th- I just think they misfired on a couple key points.
0: Yeah, I mean, we talked about all of us talked about with Rogue One how we didn't even necessarily feel like it was necessary, and that's with all of us enjoying the movie, and, and you know, me uh, for one enjoying it a lot. Um, and so I think you know it, it's especially true here where the end product isn't uh, isn't as satisfying that we do have to question whether we needed this movie. Um, and I think that I, I I don't know that I would go as far as to say that we needed a Han Solo origin story, but I think it's to your point, Scott. I think it makes sense that this is somewhere that they would want to go with a movie, and it's not not something that on paper I'm opposed to. I just wish it was a better movie. Um, I just wish that we had a better origin story for Han Solo. I wish that yeah. these satisfying moments were put into a more satisfying package, um, because now you know, kind of like we talked about with with the Anakin Skywalker with Hay- Hayden Christensen's performance as Anakin Skywalker. Now, these all of these moments that should have been iconic in, you know, the Star Wars um, lexicon, we're going to look back on and uh, the only memory we have of these moments is Hayden Christensen, you know, performing them. And that stain is always going to be there on the legacy of those moments. And I, while I think that the moments are better executed perhaps in this movie, I think that Still, when I look back on, when I think about, you know, when, when I watch one of the original movies, I hear the Kessel Run re- referred to. I'm going to think back of this movie and I'm going to think, well, I wish that movie was better. Um, and yeah. that's a
2: shame. I, that, I think that's fair. The Kessel Run, a great a great sequence, though. And on that point, did anyone know what a parsec was until, I mean, on The Mandalorian, I think it becomes really, if you watch that show, it becomes very clear what a parsec is. But did anyone really know what a parsec was? I mean, you just assume it's some sort of unit of measurement, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, I think you assume it's a unit of time, right? But it's not. It's a unit of, it's unit of distance. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I guess it's not something that I really thought that deeply about. But um,
2: it yeah. just stuck out to me more recently as I've, I feel like I've heard Parsec a lot, both on The Mandalorian and also yeah. uh, here in this one. But one last thing that I think is related to the quality of this movie and um, how necessary not necessarily how necessary the movie is, but one of the things that we're talking about what the movie was going for, and I've talked about it a lot, and it's one of the things I was leading to earlier, Jay, I don't know how much research you did on, on the backstory of this movie being made, but one of the key things that happened during the production of this film was that actually Phil Lord and Chris Miller were the ones directing this film originally, like to the point where they were literally in production of the film, like filming scenes and everything. And they actually were fired by Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm and Ron Howard was brought in to finish it. And, so one of the things, earlier really when I was talking about, I thought that originally Dryden Voss's character was probably meant to go a different direction. Like I thought he was. Th- I think there are indicated indications of that his character is almost some sort of like comedic relief sort of villain, or some of the scenes are supposed to be played for a more comedic tone. And then Ron Howard comes in, you get this a very abrupt, more dramatic change in tone, trying to go through you know a very Ron Howard you know drama type movie, and I think he's successful in some parts. And then maybe less successful than others because I think it creates a very mixed tone, Jay. But I'd love to get your reactions to, well, one, what a Lord and Miller solo movie would have been like and if that would have been better. But two, you know, in the context of everything we've talked about here, like the idea that, you know, you shuffled directors literally mid-production of a film and, you know, what you could possibly have hoped for with the outcome of a project.
1: That's a really good point uh, for you to bring up. And no, that is not something I knew. Um part of the, uh, you know, head in the sand initiative, right? Like just keep all Star Wars things off my searches, et cetera. Um, And I guess knowing what I know now and, uh, you know, I guess, you know, maybe we can cut it some slack. Uh, We certainly seen movies that have changed directors, turn out a lot, uh, you know, mid mid filming or mid production, turn out a lot worse than this. Um, I'm thinking of Justice League off the top of my head, but that's just because that one, you know, hurts close to home. Also a
2: little different, though, because I mean, Zack Snyder stepping away because he had like, what is his daughter, right? Like
1: he wasn't fired. Weirdly enough, I somehow didn't know that. I feel like this the is point, a little the more point similar about the... to like
0: Ant Ant Man and like Edgar Wright getting fired and like because yes. they wanted to go in a different direction. Yes, because he was hired before the MCU was ever even a thing. Anyway, yeah. No, I mean, as far as my thoughts, I think that I mean, obviously, I would have loved to see uh, um, Lord and Miller solo movie. And I think like to your point, Scott, it, it probably would have been a comedy, right? Because what they're so good at is comedy. Like there's nobody better at directing comedy right now than Lord Miller, in my opinion. And so I think this definitely would have had a much different vibe. And I think that Ron Howard was brought, brought in to make the sort of safe blockbuster action movie that... um that this movie turned out to be. And uh, Ron Howard is a very, very solid, very competent director that's made some great films, but he's not known for being adventurous or particular, particularly original with his filmmaking style. And so I think that, um, you know, we don't need to get into all of what's go- what goes on at Lucasfilm and the issues that Kathleen Kennedy has with bringing in people like Lord Miller, bringing in people like Ryan Johnson, and then not being satisfied when they try to take in, t- take the movie in, in the different direction that she presumably hired them for in the first place. Um, we don't, we don't necessarily need to get into that, but, um, I think that this is, you know, one example of why, um, the Star Wars community is in a little bit of tumult tumult right now and and why things are you know getting a little weird over at Lucasfilm, as much as you know they've had a lot of success with um the sequel trilogy and with the mandalorian now and you know rise of skywalker is going to break the box office um when it comes out next month i think that uh that is sort of masking a little bit some of the underlying tension that's going on in this film and um you know Unfortunately, we may never know what a Lord and Miller Star Wars project would look like, and that's a shame because I think what they've shown with what they did with, you know, first with an 80s TV series, uh, then with a, a toy company, and then with a very well-known Marvel property, they've taken all three of these things and made genius movies out of all three of them, um, and so that's a shame that we won't get to see what they can do in Star Wars. But um, with that, let's uh, let's move into our wrap-up phase. Um Jay, starting with you, your MVP of Solo.
1: Uh, easy choice for me. Um, Alden Ehrenreich, right? I mean, I I bought into it. Uh, you know, he doesn't really look or sound much like the Han Solo we, you know, saw in some of the earlier movies. But I, I still buy into his performance. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, if I especially, you know, kind of turn off my critic vision for a few seconds to, you know, look past some of the, you know, cringy fan servicey dialogue. Like I really do like, you know, kind of watching him, you know, slowly turn into that, like more jaded character by the end that, you know, more closely resembles the Han Solo. We all came to like in the original trilogy.
0: Scott, any, any, uh, different choice from you? No, it, for me, it definitely is Alden
2: Ehrenreich. I mean, I think that for the sake of being different, I, I could bring up someone like a Donald Glover. Cause I think he just does a really great job, but I think I'd be, I think I'd be remiss not not to also just go with Jay here and say Alden Aaron, right? Because I think he does. He does exactly what he's asked to do. And I've said my piece earlier about how I think he balances the homages with making the character his own. And yeah, I, I think that there's only one direction to go for me. But I think there are a couple other performances that could also be honorable mentions in there.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think Donald Glover is, is certainly one place to go. Um, I think that uh, another person is... Um, the, the cinematographer, whose name is escaping me, he he, he also shot Level and a few other. Um, but I think, Scott, you mentioned some of the shots that you like. Very well shot um, and, and visually impressive movie. Um, and so I think Bradford he, he Young. deserves some credit. Of Bradford Young, right? Um, I think he deserves some credit as well. Um, but Alden Ehrenreich is probably the place to go. live up to, and I think he does a great job. Um, and... Yeah, he, he's 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 the clear standout here. Um, favorite scene or moment, Jay? Which most
2: of the internet would not agree about. So,
0: well, there's nothing that people in Star Wars agree about except that apparently that The Mandalorian is awesome, and I mean I agree it is. Uh, Jay, favorite scene or moment?
1: Um, favorite scene or moment? Uh, I think it has to be you know escaping the blockade, right? I described this earlier. when you know, again, Chewie just kind of comes into his own and like has his moment. Not quite, you know, getting his own metal moment, but, you know, he has a moment uh, where he's like the focal point of what's going on. And again, Lando's kind of freaking out about L3. Um, You know, I was super engaged in all that.
2: Yeah, I mean, Scott, I think it won't come as a surprise at all to know that the 5000 twists at the end of the movie were what really kept me hooked and were the best things about this film. No, I I mean, like literally the, the ending scene is like, all right. Beckett betrays or so I guess it starts with infant's nest is this child is this like female child who's just like screwing with Beckett for the you know the last like few years you have Beckett betraying you have Amelia uh, Kira betraying you have Han killing Beckett it's just like so many freaking twists and then Darth Maul like it's just so many twists it's ridiculous uh no that's not that um I think for me it would be it's it's like the one shot of uh, which I already talked about of the Millennium Falcon escaping the Maw, and it's it's a beautiful shot. Like I said, one of my favorite, one of my favorite shots in Star Wars that we that we've talked about so far. Uh, it, for a, a wider moment, I think that I actually like the Sabat game. I think the the final moment where Han gets gets you know one back on Lando by stealing his car. I think that's uh, a, a really great a really great moment uh, if unnecessary at the very end of the film. Uh, because I do think it, it kind of harkens back to that earlier scene that maybe was a little too long. I would agree with you, Jay, that that first scene especially is a little bit too long in terms of how long it sits with you uh, as you kind of first – I get what they're trying to do with it, trying to introduce you to that dynamic between Lando and and, and Han uh, in their younger versions, but I agree that it lasted too long. So I really liked the the latter scene there, kind of right at the end of the movie where uh, he gets the ship back, and I think that was that was a cool moment.
0: Yeah, Scott. I think you took mine there. Um, that that was what I was going to go with. No, um, really. I thought for well, sure you
2: talk about you talk about Han and Chewie. Well, right. No. So that is my
0: favorite scene. But I was going to go with that as a backup. But yeah. So so there's my two. Han and Chewie meeting is my favorite scene. And then uh, my backup would be that ending. Yeah. Where where uh, of course Han um, has stolen the the card that Lando used to cheat the first time when he played the game, um, and is able to get win the Millennium Falcon for good um, that way. So yeah, that's that's a great scene and and a good note to end on I think. Um, okay, scores out of ten, Jay. Where do, what would you give uh, Solo a Star Wars story? And while we're at it, where would you rank it on your current list of Star Wars movies?
1: Okay, so I mean, this movie, you know, did some fun stuff. Whiffed on me for some weird uh, on some weird notes. Uh, it's really funny that they felt the need to kind of quickly throw in an explanation on why the original Lando Calrissian pronounces it as hand um yeah but you know shout out to that um ultimately i'm gonna give this a 7.6 which puts it above phantom menace and attack of the clones but below everything else we've seen so far
2: okay scott uh sky i did the diligence of going back and looking at what i reviewed and rated this movie as when we talked about it last year and i gave it a 6.5 then i bumped it up from about half a star uh which is going to be reflective of my score i'm giving it a nice healthy 6.9
0: Nice. Um, I, I'm not sure what I gave it last time, but I imagine it was somewhere around the same range as you. And I'm just going to go with the 6.2. Cause I think that, uh, yep. that's pretty consistent with my feelings. Um, you gave I, it a 6.8 last time. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it got any, it certainly didn't get any better on this watch. So yeah, um, 6.2, I, I, it's not my favorite. Um, and as far as where is where it is on my list, um, I am with Jay, except I would put it above Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, um, but below Phantom Menace. Scott, uh, what about you?
2: For me, it sits above; it it does sit above the prequel trilogy, all three of them, but below uh, the four other movies that we've seen. So,
0: there you go. (laughs) All right, well, that concludes our discussion of Solo: A Star Wars Story. Where can we find you guys on Twitter or social media? Jay, starting with you.
1: Uh, You can find me at jhabib15 on. Any of the major social media platforms.
0: Scott, how about you? At Shelton, twenty thirteen, uh, and I am at Scarby Dent. We hope you have enjoyed this episode uh, of Star Wars Countdown, um, and we hope that you will uh, join us next time. Don't forget um, about all all of the places you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we're all there in the some like at Scott feed. Uh, you can find all the Star Wars Countdown episodes, all the Some Like It Scott episodes. We're getting into award season now with some of the big movies. So um, be sure to check out our Some Like It Scott episodes as well. Um, and check out our Patreon, po- uh, patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Um, and rate, review, subscribe, do all the things on your podcast app. And most importantly, Uh, Join us again for the next episode of Star Wars Countdown, on which we will be discussing the beginning of the sequel trilogy, Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. There's only Uh, two left. We're so close. We are so close. Until then, uh, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you next time.